since 1971. Tuesday night is coming a week from tomorrow night, actually. Uh, Riff invites you to have some fun at the Rooster Tail on a uh, Riffraft cruise. Uh, we'll be broadcasting in the uh, Riff uh, Yellow Wagon. The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Hi, everybody. I'm Ken Calvin. And I'm Lynn Waters. Uh, join us tomorrow as we rock the Motor City bigger than all Texas, the Thursday edition of the Riff Rock and Roll Morning Show. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. What time is it? Uh, 501 almost. Is it really? Yes. Oh, no. Yeah, you don't have time to go back to bed this time. For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. You have a remarkable mom. WRIF is a remarkable radio station. Baby! Well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is the history of WRIF. I am your host, Mike Staff, and I had the pleasure of being a DJ on the Riff from 1992 to 2006. And we're taking a look at the people and the personalities that, well, that made the Riff the Riff. Well, and, I guess. There's so much that I would, yeah, I guess, yeah. I don't know if there's a person with more personality on WRIF than Ken Calvert. Well, it, it, would, it depends upon who you ask. Now, I know that uh, Arthur preceded me, right? Sure. He is no, the big I think Arthur was the big personality. He was the... Um, he was the... I, you know, I'm not so sure he was the... Um, he, he, was the he was the straw that stirred the drink. Mm-hmm. That'd be the best way I could describe it. And I like, I like expressions like that. But Arthur was, was, without a doubt, the most interesting character I have ever, ever been around. Day, night, on air, off air, any situation, the most interesting human I have ever dealt with. He was the man of a thousand moods, and all of them were just... He, he, had, he had the capability of having the greatest amount of artistic peak, I think, that I've ever witnessed. How so? Um, anger. <laughs> you know... Um, I remember saying to him, how you doing? Well, obviously not so good. Well, no, I, I didn't know that you weren't doing so good. Well, then why'd you ask? <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Why don't you settle down? Well, then why don't you start asking stupid questions? I'm just like, it came from nowhere, right. but I truly enjoyed it. I mean, well, and there's part just in there with him, and, yeah. and there's part not, and sometimes you're unsure of which you're getting. Yeah, I, I remember walking into the studio once, and he he was singing the song, I don't want to grow up, I'm a Toys R Us kids, lots and lots and lots of toys that I can play with, I want to be a Toys R Us kid. <laughs> I can see it being a theme song And I was just art. like, wow, the gentler side of Arthur Pennell. But no, that was... Um, he was. I, I love him. I absolutely love him. And I think it's a crying shame that he's not on the radio right now. Mm-hmm. But I will say this, and I and he'll he'll be pissed off to hear me say this. But I think it's only because he simply doesn't want to. But selfishly, he should. I mean, he still owes it to a group, a generation, and another generation that never had the opportunity to hear that kind of radio. Right. You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're an iconic jock. Uh, there, are, there aren't enough. Um, I don't think there, there's enough 
of Arthur's material out there. I really don't. Mm -hmm. Because we couldn't do it like we can do it now. Well, that's true. And just think of all of the stuff we lost. Well, I imagine he, he probably has some of it on reel-to-reel -reel tape and things yeah, like that. Yeah, and but just what, do you like, think, what do you think that went? Right, where? Who went knows? Right back into a production room because, you know, the production director would always need more tape. Right. And he would go, well, nobody marked it. Uh, I'm taking it. You know what I mean? And then we had the dats, but nobody really... Right, no, there, there was no caretaker did. of the dat. Right. Occasionally a cassette. You would put a cassette in and record the interview. But I don't remember what I did with them. And I often think about that now because oh. if I were still on the air now oh. and I did a, an interview, I would just post the interview on Facebook. Yep. And then I know it's there forever. Yeah, and that's a great would, idea. And all the pictures of the interviews and all that kind of stuff would never get lost. I, I remember in 1973, that was the first year I was in radio. I remember Don Schuster telling me, the PD at the time, and not a long period of time, and well, I'm, I don't mean to just ramble on you like this, um, but the first person I ever interviewed was uh, Ken Hensley with Uriah Heep. And I just thought, I'm not ready for this. Uriah Heep, you know, easy feeling, you know? <laughs> and I'd done the rancher's daughter. You know what I mean? And um, stealing. And I, I just, I, I just remember going, okay, breathe deep, okay, breathe deep. What are you going to ask him? How you doing? Just start with how you doing. Or hey man, hey man, how you doing? There you go, hey man, how you, you know. And it was just, I would give my kingdom to have that because it was that my one first, interview. Right, it was my first interview. Yeah, and little you did know. you know that that was the prelude to all those other great interviews. People so say, what was your favorite interview, or who did you interview? And I remember my wife looking at me when we were watching Bohemian Rhapsody, and she said, "Did you ever meet Freddie Mercury?" And I said, "I did." And I said it was so weird because the entire band came in completely dressed for stage. To the radio station. To the radio station because they were going right from the radio station down to Kobo. Mm. And I was like, and Freddie was not a friendly person, very eccentric, very arrogant. Um, Deacon was very cool. Brian May was the source point for me. And I just remember them walking out going, that was weird. You know? <laughs> and of course, when this stuff is going on, you, don't, you can't really put it in the context that we have it right now. No, and I also can't refer to it because I never even thought to put any sort of recording device mm -hmm. or tap that red button that would have allowed that because the record guy just said, we've got 15 minutes. We've got the time. Let's just stop by and say hi to Ken Calvert. Mm -hmm. He's on the air from 6 till 10. And it was like, well, okay. So but that's the saddest part of my career is that I don't have all of that somewhere. If I had it somewhere, I wouldn't mind because sure. I would eventually get to it. But I don't. Yeah, it's gone. But it's gone. Yep. So, yeah. It's in the ether. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's what they call it. That's where it is. So, Ken, you have had... And such an unbelievable career in Detroit. I mean, your, your voice is one of the most recognizable voices of Detroit. It it's personifies Detroit. Does it? I it don't. It really I don't. does. When did you know you had this voice? I didn't know I had a voice. I really didn't. Um, I knew I had a passion for it as a young kid. 
I remember my dad worked for AC Spark Plug, and he went to car dealers, and he went to gas stations, and he sold spark plugs. And if they bought enough boxes of spark plugs, AC Spark Plugs, they got tchotchkes, and one of the more popular ones um, was a small transistor radio. And I remember I got a lot of amp transistor radios. You know, I mean, as gifts, and I knew, but it was great. Mm -hmm. So at night, like so many kids did and maybe still do, I time-traveled at night. And uh, this these transistors at night, you know, would go into Cleveland, Chicago, Pittsburgh. Uh, they would go down south to the 50,000 clear watt radio stations, CKLW at night. Um, and JR went of course, everywhere. everywhere. So I'd be listening to Tiger Baseball. And it was just, I would time travel, and I just loved rock and roll. And I loved what these guys were doing. So, you know, it was groovy guys, groovy gals, and they were talking so quick and so seamless. I, and my dad did have a great voice. So my dad did say, articulate, pronunciate, say your words correctly. Well, you'll do better in school if you talk like you're, if you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And so um, that's essentially, I mean, that's, and then all of a sudden I realized, no, this is what I want to do. So, so you knew when you were a little kid. I knew officially in the ninth grade that I wanted to be on the radio as a career. Got it. That's yeah. great, isn't it? A yeah, gift. I mean, you don't it, realize what a gift that is at, at the 15, time. 15, 16, I knew this is what I wanted to do. You know, I had a few things that I knew would probably, uh, to, the, to the point where if I got drafted and I was, I, was, I was convinced I would get drafted, that was going to be my mission in the service was, yeah, to, to, was to go into radio. And I thought, I've, I've got to figure out how to explain what type of radio I want to get into. Because I don't want the one on my back where I go in first going, there's tons of them. Get here quick. You know what I mean? <laughs> so were you waiting to for your next step in life? Like, I don't know if I should go to college, if I'm going to be drafted. or I thought I should go to college. I thought I should go to college because my buddies were in college and they were having a great time in college. But I hadn't really effectively pursued it the way I should have. So I ended up getting into a college in Grand Rapids called Aquinas College. And I wasn't prepared for college, but they had a radio station. And uh, I went and I auditioned for the radio station. It was a daytimer. And during the day, they did, they did um, uh, classical music. And at night, they opened it up. It was so limited in terms of jocks that nobody was going to get in. It was really, uh-uh. But they had to give you a little bit of an interview. So I got an interview. And I didn't get the gig, so I only stayed for a semester, came back home, went to OCC, got a gig at WORB, Orchard Ridge Broadcasting, <laughs> where I worked in the mornings. I had a two-hour morning show, two days a week, with a woman by the name of Randy Stember. We had to share time. Randy Stember changed her name to Randy Thomas. She got a job at W4. She and I became very good friends. She was very attractive. They hired her. She told the guys there, the guy you should be talking to is this guy I worked with at WORB, OCC. His name is Ken Calvert. Hmm. And so they said, well, 
fine. Thank you so much. But Randy, 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 I want to tell you as a sidebar to that, Randy Thomas is the voice of the Academy Awards. Oh, really? The Emmys, the Tonys, the ESPYs, you name it. When you hear that female voice, they did a big piece on her this year because of the fact that it was the hostless Academy Awards. She was basically the host Mm. as the announcer. Interesting. Our presenters tonight are so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, so-and-so. This is, you know, Mike Staff. First nomination and first award, first time winning an Academy Award for the Ken Calvert interview. Isn't that something? Yeah, and she'd been doing it for so long, and that was like... did he get into radio? (laughs) And so I check in with her every once in a while, but she really made it big. Isn't that interesting? We all had so many in our lives. But two people at OCC, one got to a big-time radio station, Mentioned my name. My name got me an interview. My interview got me a, hey, life lesson. Go back. <laughs> learn how to do this. Come back. And I can finish that part of the story real quick if you want. Sure. She did get me an interview. I did go down. I met a guy named Don Schuster. Schuster and I went to lunch. We stopped at a chicken shack on East Jefferson. And I will tell you, I was terrified. He said, stay in the car. I'll go get the chicken. And I was not in a comfortable area. And it was very, very hot and very, very curious at the time. Just sort of like sitting in the car going, How long are you going to be inside? <laughs> and he finally came back out. We went to Belle Isle, where he pulled out two joints. We opened the chicken. We did a little toking and talking. And I started talking about Keener 13, started talking about CKLW, started talking about Keener FM, talked about talk, well, we started talking about, at that point, WRIF, and we just had one of the most incredible talks ever. We were just two guys talking about loving radio. Now, was he the PD at W4 at that time? He was the PD, and I believe he was the temporary PD because KZEW had just gone on the air, not switched formats in Dallas, had just gone on the air, and his air staff was raided. Uh, Ira Cook, Mark Daddy Addy, Governor McKen Rundle, three full-timers had gone, and there was one other. So they, they were just completely hammered for talent, and they had hired a guy by the name of Paul Sullivan, guy by the name of Jim Pettijohn. They changed his name to Jim Jefferson. They hired Randy Thomas. And they had a guy by the name of Michael Benner and Karen Savelli. So we had a great, great lunch. Came back and he said, you got to do the I-75 shuffle. You've got it. Get up north. Come on. And I said, what's that? He goes, start your way down I-75. Go up to Traverse City, then come down to Bay City, Saginaw, Flint. Then stay in touch, bro. Stay in touch. I said, okay. So they had a guy that did all nights, Brent Wilson. I get home. I've never been so happy in my life. Emotionally exhausted. Phone rings. My roommate answers the phone. Hey, it's a guy by the name of Don Schuster. He wants to talk to you. I said, yo, Don. What's up? 
He said, hey, my all-night guy just took a big dump on me, man. He's not coming in. Is there any way I can put you on the air overnight? Full-time. To fill in. Okay. The whole show. Don't go to bed. Don't go to sleep. Don't nap. Put on a pot of coffee. Get down here in the next two hours. I got down there. I waited around. I waited around. I waited around. Didn't go on the air till <clears throat> I believe the, sh- the the shift started at midnight and went to like six a.m. Midnight to two was was arguably the worst radio in the history of mankind. <laughs> Your first two hours ever. <laughs> I knew they were that bad that I'd never I'd never see them again. Two till three, a little smoother. He kind of came in and went yeah. Three to four, hey. Four to five, he was like, I think this guy's getting it. And by the time five to six came, I was so whacked, I just didn't care. And he said, excellent, bravo, bravo, nice job. He called me the next day and said, my big boss wants to see you tomorrow morning. I think it's good. The guy's name was Bart Walsh. He said, I'll pay you $750 a month to do the... I'll, to do two to six in the afternoon wow. with a Saturday shift of 10 to three. And I went, where do I sign? Coming up. Anyway, my job was to say, Finn Lizzie, love this record. Boys are back in town. We're going to play the shit out of this. But I got to tell you right now, this is not me authoring this. This kind of comes from management. I got to have you make your next stage down to sales because we're going to have to back this up with revenue and ads. The History of WRAF podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts. Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Lainey Wilson is on a roll. She's delivering great music and teaming up with some of country's hottest acts. Text Laney to 45911 to see which four Laney Wilson collabs have us talking at BackstageCountry.com. Text Laney to 45911 to get a link to the list sent right to your phone from BackstageCountry.com. The history of WRIF. JJ. And the morning crew. Ken Calvin. Arthur Penhallow. Steve Costan. And Karen Savelli. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Ken Calvert. So how did you become PD? You didn't have experience. Well, that was by default. It was because I actually, to some extent, had some experience. And Bob Birch was the PD. He was a guy out of St. Louis. The Grafman brothers, eventually the owners of Century Broadcasting, decided they were going to pull this thing in a little bit, make it a little more like Casey in St. Louis. A little bit tighter format. It had a format. I wouldn't say a tighter format. It actually was time for a format. In other words, when I worked at ABX at one point, you could go from playing Whitey on the Moon by The Last Poets to a spoken word record by Ken Nordeen. Um, If any of the other FM stations played it in any sort of a rotation, ABX would not play it. Okay? When it got to a point when Shelley Grafman, one of the owners, but a hands-on, hardcore, 
essentially a PD, operations manager as we know it now, he wanted to he wanted to hear he wanted to hear bands that were successful in St. Louis. If it worked there, it was going to work here. His way in St. Louis was going to work here. And to some extent, it did. So he also liked to draw revenue from the record companies by adding their records. Enter Ken Calvert, make him the music director, make him the MDPD, because Birch, at that point, they were starting to accumulate properties. Camel uh, in San Francisco, other stations. Uh, one in, in Los Angeles and, uh, and and Bob Birch became a big big player in the you know in the industry. He was one of the big guys. I stayed back. I would see the record guys, the record record guys, men and women. Women were at the fore, forefront of the record industry back then. They were really the power players. It's very interesting. They were ahead of the time. They were way ahead of the curve. Denise Monsell, uh, Millie Felch. Um, trying to think of who else. They'll come to me. Anyway, my job was to say, Thin Lizzy, love this record. Boys are back in town. We're going to play the shit out of this. But i got to tell you right now, this is not me authoring this. This kind of comes from management. i got to have you make your next stage down to sales because we're going to have to back this up with revenue and ads. So the record company would buy ads. Record company. If you want your record to be supported properly. Interesting. This is not a demand. This is the two of us working in concert to promote something that we tr- truly believe in. Very nice frame. Well, I was very uncomfortable. I was very uncomfortable with it because I wasn't on the capitalistic side of things at all. It just was not in my DNA. Yeah. So it was, um, it was an interesting time. My relationship with the record companies got me a couple of interviews with the record companies. The record companies said, hey, we like the way you roll in your gig. Would you be interested in, in working with us? And so I you went to that. Columbia Records. I ended up going to Columbia Records. Started with Epic, and then I moved over to Columbia. Okay. Now, was that tough for you? Because you had a pretty good radio gig. I loved it, and it was a good gig. Because I was one of those guys, now I needed to know, you know, I was one of those guys that when you got the watch for Christmas, I took it apart <laughs> instead of wearing it, okay? Now the tech I wanted to know how the record company fit in there, okay? And I knew that, you know, you were, guy, you were the guy carrying tickets, you were the guy bringing artists in, and I did that for three years, and only three years. But it felt like 10, and what it did to me emotionally and physically um, is really hard to explain. Did you have to move? I did. I moved to Chicago, which I loved. And um, then one day, I got a phone call from Jim Johnson, and I was kind of burning out. I was out on the road with the new barbarians, Ron Wood. Mm. Keith Richards, Stanley Clark, Zigaboo, Bobby Keys, and it was like the Rolling Stones without Mick. Mm. And of course, all the radio stations would tease. Pittsburgh is the one market that Mick may show up. Cleveland was for sure the market. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be Detroit. 
And I was the guy that would come in and make sure that Costan, O'Leary, Johnson, everybody else got their tickets, got their meet and greets. But I was the guy actually with the band. And I remember being with Woody and Keith, close to Woody and Keith, true story, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where they were based out of. They had an airstrip there and would fly out of there, fly back, and they had like these sprawling townhouses and they all had bicycles and we all had a place and the amount of drugs and and alcohol was beyond anything to the point where I was really starting to get concerned yeah and um, I said whoa I gotta I got I got off that that tour when it left the Midwest and I got back to Chicago and I just said whoa I gotta cool it man I'm now, you worked closely with Bruce Springsteen, too. I did, and that was a blast. That's a different that scene. That was in 78. Oh, that he was wasn't much, doing drugs. He no, was that, that was guy. a much different scene. But that didn't mean the radio guys weren't. Uh-huh. <laughs> and with Columbia Records, we had a, we called it the khaki policy. Columbia guys wore khakis. The Epic guys wore blue jeans. Mm. We kind of were more the GQ type guys. The Epic guys had a way of using their American Express cards, company cards. They could work in concert with a bartender, give him 10% for 90 bucks. They'd use the card mm. for a $10 drink and get 90 bucks back. Got it. Okay? The 90 would get you what you needed to get <laughs> to take care of PDs, who I'm not going to name, all around the Midwest. Now, this is way different than, so our listeners understand, not payola. No. We're talking this was, a little bit different. This was purely <laughs> purely entertainment to mm-hmm. assist the PDs and the MDs um, just to make sure that the show was perhaps just a little brighter and right. they were a little happier. <laughs> a little bit more yeah. alert. <laughs> yeah. And it was, and I'll tell you what, uh, it was a don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. It truly was. Because and it was accepted it was practice too at the absolutely. time. Absolutely, it was. It could not be mandated, but right. it was. There were ways of burying in your expense account, and everybody did it because everybody had to do it. Mm-hmm. There was a station in Cleveland that I won't mention that you had to bring something, or you did not get a meeting. There were so many other stations, Country Western, nothing like that. Country Western wanted to, you you know because that was part of your if you, as I was a rapum a regional album promotion marketing manager so not just for I also formats. worked with the country guys and the R and B guys and the country guys just wanted to go to two and a half hour lunches and get drunk they just wanted to pound some beakers um, R and B guys wanted to have lunch and a long lunch at a really good restaurant. Mm. You know what I mean? Maybe have a little scotch, a little cabassier, whatnot. At the scotch and sirloin over, you know. <laughs> and the rock guys was way different. <laughs> yeah, the rock guys. No, the rock guys didn't care about eating. No, the rock guys uh, just wanted to, uh, you know, light them up and light it up. <laughs> and uh, so, but anyway, uh, to end that epic, and then I'll get out of the way. To end that, to get to riff, in late 1978, 79, Jim Johnson, it was 79. It was, it was July of 79. I was, I was ready to come home. Johnson called me from nowhere and said, hey, 
we got a thing going on here. We're putting the band back together at WRIF. It's me and George in the morning. It's Arthur in the afternoon. Karen's doing evenings. Jay Brando's doing middays, and I think they're going to move him somewhere, maybe all night, and Phil Foreman. I don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to they're they're making some moves, and I put your name in for it. So Calvert, you have to move home. And I went, I have a job, Jim. He goes, then quit and come home, Calvert. You can't pass this up. This is too good. I started thinking, well, I am back home. I'm back on the radio. It's middays mm-hmm. at Riff, WRIF. He said, yep. So I went to Steve. You've got to get a tape. So I went to Steve Dahl's house. Dahl had a studio. And I cut a tape, and it was pretty brutal. But I sent it off. In a few years. Yeah, I had to get it off. And Bender got it, and Bender said, this is horrible. But, you know, but, I, get, but I got something. And I didn't even know Bender very well. And he said, I got to tell you, the GM, Jay Hoker, has never heard of you. I said, I don't know what to tell you. He goes, well, come on in and meet him. Three of us went to dinner at the Holiday Inn at 10 Mile and Northwestern. You, Tom Bender, and uh, Jay Hoker. And Jay Hoker, yep. It's now a Kirby's Coney Island over there. And we went to lunch and came out of there. And Hoker said, well, I'll have Tom get back to you. I'm going to let Tom handle this. I'm cool. I'm cool. He says this to Tom. And Tom says, well, I'll get back to you. So I met with Tom again, and Tom just said, is your heart in it? Do I got you? I mean, I mean, he was really like, is your heart in this? That makes sense. Are you going to go off on me again? You know, are you going to do anything? I mean, you've been at W4, you've been at ABX, you've been with a record company in a very short period of time, Mm -hmm. and that's only been six years. What I got to have you. I said, you got me. I'm home. This is it. I can tell. I can tell. And um, late 1979. Wow, wait a minute. This. What is that? Is that, oh, 30 years ago? 40 years ago. Oh, you should. <laughs> 79, 20, yeah. yeah, 40 years ago. Uh, <laughs> 40 years ago today. So, so that lineup, you know, um, so you have J.J. in the morning crew in the morning. J.J. in the morning You're crew. You're in middays, Arthur P. in the afternoon, Karen Savelli at night. To me, I know it's not the air aces of the ABX days, but to me that was like it was. the I think, no, I'm gonna first say, riff yeah. heyday, yeah. the beginning to riff really being on the That's map. That's when the chemistry across the dot mm-hmm. was seamless. Everybody just sounded awesome. And everyone was lit up to be on this radio station that was kicking ass. You could not. I mean, it was, there was no higher power than Mm -hmm. to, you know. God, we were, I mean, we were putting 3,000 people in, in, in the, you know, this, at Oak Park. I remember playing Journey once. And it was just. Playing Journey in a softball game. In a softball game. It was wall to wall. And uh, it was just phenomenal. So you have uh, JJ and the morning crew, yeah. and they, would you say that they hit their stride at Riff during that time? I mean, they yeah, were. Yeah, they were bubbling show. under at, at W4. Mm-hmm. They were bubbling under. I remember Dahl at ABX because uh, uh, Shelly Grafman hated him, hated him. He said, I'm not going to have a guy on the air eating cereal, chewing, crunching it on the microphone, and talking about how badly he wants to get laid. <laughs> And his number, <laughs> and I said, people are loving it, Shelly. Right. And he says, well, I'm not. you got to get rid of him. I said, I can't get rid of him. 
I said, he's a friend of mine. We live together, man. I said, I can't get rid of him. And he said, well, you're going to have to. I said, well, I can't. Find somebody else to get rid of him because I can't. And he did. And I said, but I want you to know, Shelly, I've never pushed back on you in my life. You're making a mistake. Yeah, and our listeners and in Detroit Dora. may not know Steve Dahl, but he is uh, about as big as it comes in Chicago. He, he ended up in Chicago. And don't forget, um, it, it, it was just the anniversary. A blown up disco? Yeah. It's the anniversary two weeks ago. Yeah. I guess. Well, no, it was I in mean, 79. It's be 40 it was 40 years, years ago. ago. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah. Because yeah. I had just started at Riff. Yeah. So JJ, what was it about JJ that finally hit? Like because they had a huge following in Detroit. Because they were the kings. When Don went to Chicago to to the Loop in Chicago, I think he just slightly offered George a position. Not he didn't say George, you're going. Steve, and, yeah, Steve, Steve offered George. Yeah, Steve Dahl. I I'm not even sure mm-hmm. that he offered him the gig, but I knew George wasn't going. I mean. He was not going. Johnson was a PD. Johnson had to fill in. I remember seeing Johnson, and he would say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, you guys sound pretty damn good together. Why do you want to do anything? Because I'm the PD. I said, well, can you do both? Yeah. I said, well, you can leave early, man. Right. What do you have to do? Station's running itself. Why don't you just become... People are getting used to you doing it. And... um, so he, he said, yeah. And he, it morphed. He didn't take my advice. I took a lot of people's advice. But it morphed into a great show. Yeah, it did. George and that Bear was when, that's when Riff said, that they got something going there. We're going to get those guys. Mm. And that's when they really started to put together a radio station. Bender really wanted to put that thing together. He had Michael Collins on in the morning before that. And it was, they, it was a wayward radio station. They just didn't know what they wanted to do, but mm-hmm. they wanted to be a player in the FM music industry, and in Detroit especially. Well, when they put that team together, that yeah. was like a statement that says, here get, we are. It was get out doing. of the way. Mm-hmm. And we had that beloved time in the trailers where it was just hysterical, which even brought everybody <laughs> together even more. On a day like today with no air conditioning, opening up windows in an, an actual trailer. Well, yeah, sort of let the listeners in on the joke, ABC Radio owned Riff at the time. Yes. And um, it, you know, almost like the bastard stepchild, kind of, because rock radio really wasn't a thing. It was just becoming a thing, right? Well, it was, but it wasn't. I mean, you had PLJ in New York, um, and I think, um, I don't, but I know for sure PLJ. I know that when I was working there, we had to hit news at the top of the hour. On riff. Yeah, and yeah. you had to back time because it was live. Right. I dug that. I thought that goes back to my transistor radio days, right. man. That was cool. And you got this math. You got a ten second ding in your ear and you were like on the map going, When I get back, I've got that new one from Bob Seeger for you. But first this. But da 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 I'm Larry Wall, ABC News. You know, like, we get back to the trailer real quick. Yeah. Um, Riff Studios were literally in, in a trailer. Two trailers side by side. A double wide. Double wide. Uh-huh. It was a double wide. And if anybody ran down the hall, you would hear boom, 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 boom. And it would literally go over the mic. And when we'd open this back window to get some air into the, into the studio... You would hear the cars going by on 10-mile road. <laughs> and guys would be cutting the lawn, and you'd have to go, 
Tom, what am I supposed to do? They're really close to the trailer. Play one more. You know, because they'd be right at the door. Uh, so right at the did, back window. So then, um, how soon after JJ and the morning crew were on Rift did you come on? Was it like pretty much back to back, boom, boom? Oh, I would say it was, I, you know, I don't know the exact timeline, but I'd say with, within months. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. within months. Yeah, and then Arthur already had a following, right? And Arthur did. Reputation. Arthur did, yeah, because Arthur was the voice of the radio station. I believe he was the. I, he probably would tell you he was the first live hire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, before when it was WXYZ FM. Yeah, and then they did that full page ad. Um, but yeah, Arthur was went from Cicero Grimes in mm-hmm. Ann Arbor to. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think he was living out in Holly or something, and uh, yeah, so he uh, he was doing afternoons, and he felt much better when he had a support staff around him. Mm-hmm. And he liked me, and I liked him. We just we, but we were <laughs> fire and ice, you know what I mean? Because I just I kind of poke the bear, and I like to poke the bear. But I know that he liked to be flattered, mm. and that's when I started coming up with stupid stuff to do. I gave him the name the Grand Poobah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and the Friday afternoon crossovers oh. were just absolutely legendary. Ladies and gentlemen, staff and management have assembled here in the hallways at WRIF. All looking down, as you may know, Arthur refuses to make eye contact with the working bees. This time, the nearly nude Simone manservants will slowly work their way out to the 1963 Econoline van, which says on the back, if I'm reading it correctly, don't laugh, your daughter may be inside. And on the other side, it says, if this van's a rockin', do not come a knockin'. Yeah. It was the just consummate theater of the mind, oh, which yeah. is what was so cool oh. about radio. Now, oh. when you, how how much oh. prep did you put into this stuff, Ken? I or was it just kind of like I started on Thursday nights to write up things like this man was once seen wearing wearing aluminum clown shoes to a mini skirt contest, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, he even he would kind of laugh. Oh, he would. And he laugh. would just he would preen. He would walk around the studio like, qua, qua, and we and then we you know we'd go into Jeff's boogie. Um, and uh, you know the great Jeff Beck instrumental, mm-hmm. Yardbirds instrumental, and then we were just off and rocking. And I remember one time just um, taking the Bob boat horn, that brrrr, and we, we came up with rock and roll overtime. Yeah. And it made more sense for his show. I just remember it made more sense for his show. Yeah, the rock and roll overtone, is, it's, a lot of our listeners will remember that. Yeah. He would use it in the context of its yeah, because uh, 82 could, riff rock and roll Because it was twice. It would go once, and there was a gap. It was like, yeah, 82 rock and, riff, rock and roll riff, roll over, take off your top, baby. Rock. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And then he started coming up. Then he started doing rhymes mm-hmm. that made no sense. Right. You know, and then he'd lose his place in in trying to create a rhyme. (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) if you can't do it, then don't try and underdo it. The history of WRIF. It's quitting time! 
Coming up. And I'll never, ever forget the time Costan blew it. Tell you what he did. He started to play I Love Rock and Roll. And just that da 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 And then he went to spots. Guy called and said, no, you did not fulfill the promise. $5,000. Five in a row, or we pay the dough. Stevie hit the wrong button, but we had promised to play a song from start to finish, five in a row, with no interruptions. Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Award-winning movies often have incredible soundtracks, and many of those have gone on to become country gold. We've picked our top five country songs that have been nominated for an Oscar. Text OSCAR to 45911 to see if your favorite made the list on BackstageCountry.com. Text OSCAR to 45911, and we'll send the link straight to your phone. 101. The history of WRIF. WRIF. Everything that rocks. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Ken Calvert. Those were, without a doubt, the most incredibly great days. We ended up moving to the new building, which was just so... It was so shocking to the system to go from two trailers side by each, which I wish we never had. Because the, the room just, it just gave it so much, ah, uh, there was so much DNA in that yeah. room. You know, that when we Probably went into... for real. When, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. When we went into that, <laughs> oh, you bet. Oh, you bet. I mean, a squirrel got loose and that got in there once. Um, poor Karen. I think poor Karen hated it, though. I don't think anybody's been happier than Karen. Um, Talk about Karen for a minute. She really, um, she really had a following. She really resonated with the rock and roll. Well, audience. of course, because she fulfilled the ultimate promise. You know, what does Karen look like? Right. Really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't like you were being um, fooled. Uh, yeah, well, it wasn't <laughs> like you were being voice. a pig, right? You know what I mean? It was like, uh, and, and it was only natural for guys. It was theater of the mind. Uh-huh. And I remember Michael Benner, who I worked with at uh, W4, and I always laugh about the fact that your first gig's on the hardest radio station to, uh, you know, announce the call letters. And I remember Schuster going, WW, WW, go up the ladder, go down the ladder. WW, WW, I said, sort of a Don Imus, you know. oh, yeah, like, Yeah, or Howard Stern, WNBC. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, yeah, WNBC. <laughs> Laying on the floor, trying, you know, trying to do it like Don Imus with pig vomit. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, Karen Savelli was just was has such and still does. And I I want to this day I just want to shake her because she's got she's one of the best voiceover artists mm-hmm. on the planet. She can read and sell it, and it sounds so good. And it's so natural, mm-hmm. and she was so great on the air, so good, and she was always overprepped, and I mean hopelessly overprepped. Mm-hmm. She had stuff everywhere that she never used, but she brought it in every day. <laughs> never know what you're going to need. Guys would call and say, "Is she as good looking as I think she is?" And I'd go, "Yes." Yes, she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, 
So and that, that about that same time, so we got JJ, we got you in the middays, Arthur, and then Karen. That's when, and then we- yeah, and then you started to have other little branches growing out of that that became really important parts of that radio station, such as well, you had Lynn Woodison mm-hmm. who was doing news with JJ and George, who later became your co-host, who, who later became my co-host, and Lynn, another one who two things had the came, excuse me. Had the same, pardon that Freudian, yeah, <laughs> Freudian pardon slip. that Freudian <laughs> slip. She came with the same sort of credentials that Karen did. Mm. Very good sounding person, very attractive, mm-hmm. very attractive, but just can, I mean, so talented. It's shocking to me that I had, I I, I worked with three of the greatest female talents I can ever ever imagine. Randy Stember, Karen Savelli, and Lynn Woodison. Mm-hmm. You know, not to mention Rhonda Hart, the late great oh, yeah. Rhonda Hart. Such a powerful person. And uh, just, um, so those branches started to grow. You had sports people coming in. Eli Zaret started basically his career. In fact, he started, did his first ever radio sports cast with me at WABX. And we played the Harlem Globetrotters theme song worrying nothing at all about royalties or any of that mm, of course not. did it all the time as did they with when he was sports with JJ and the morning crew so you had I mean think of that think mm. of that show sure you know you had, you had Jim Johnson George Boyer Lynn Woodison Eli Serrett and it was just Phenomenal! How good that show sounded. Yes, I mean they had a good morning show. Mm-hmm. They had good news. They had great sports. They had great talent. Great bits. Mm-hmm. And they had great music. Right. Fresh out of the yeah. fresh out of the plastic. Well, and at that point, Riff had great marketing, which oh. was kind of new to radio at the time. That and was ABC owned and operated, mm-hmm. like AB- the Remarkable Mouth TV the, commercial. Well, Kelly Harmon. My, I'll never forget my uncle Lindy saying to me, "I don't listen to that radio station, but I'm going because of that girl on the on the TV set." Do you know her? Do you work with her? Uh, no, Uncle Lindy, I, I don't work with her. She came in once, and she's pretty. Now she lives out in Los Angeles, out in LA. Yeah, but that was yeah. So w- the joke was, if the ratings were down, ABC in New York would say, "How much do you need?" And just throw on those TV yeah. spots, yeah. yeah, or throw you the money. Mm. I'll never, oh, for for, I'll never forget. We we got into a problem once, and I don't know. I remember when WLLZ launched. I want to say Lee Arnold was the PD, and he flew a helicopter and landed it on uh, the property over at Lawrence Tech, right across from uh, Channel Seven Broadcast House, and he uh, got out of the helicopter and stood on a flatbed truck and megaphone kind of did a Steve Dahl disco demolition deal and had the megaphone you want a piece of us well we're going to come and they did 98 straight days of commercial free radio which is very tough to compete against <laughs> June, July, August it was, it was killing us mm-hmm. but we figured out and we knew exactly when the commercials were coming and so we started a countdown on them and then we, because they had to, they had to, really, start to pay off some debt. So they went 
they went spot heavy and we went spot light and we did five in a row or we paid the dough five thousand dollars if we don't play five i remember that we pay five now five thousand dollars if you monetize it to today would probably be what Seventy-five, fifteen thousand. Yeah, yeah. Because we're talking nineteen eighty-one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, but it was a, it would be ten grand mm-hmm. easy. So that one, and everybody got their chance to do it. And I'll never ever forget the time Costan blew it. And that was the only time I've ever seen Bender, and I forget who the PD was at the time. Fred, maybe? Was it Fred? No, Fred was the PD. Bender was not the... Was not the um, it doesn't really matter, but yeah. they, they were furious. I'll tell you what he did. He started to play I Love Rock and Roll. And just that... Da, 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 da. And then he went to spots. Guy called and said, Nope, you did not fulfill the promise. Five in a row... <laughs> or we pay the dough. And this guy was not going to go away. And he was right. Yeah, concert tickets weren't going to make him go away. <laughs> Stevie hit the wrong button. Da-da-da-da-da. Mm. And it was like, you know the beginning of Joan Jett. Sure. And it was there wasn't even a guitar lick. It might not have even been that much. But we had promised to play a song from start to finish, five in a row, with no interruptions. Yeah, promise is a promise. Yeah. And I think we disqualified it with the fact that we might have some sort of of uh, imaging in between. Five in a row or we pay the dough. Mm. You know, five thousand dollars, <laughs> you know. And sure enough, we all had our time assigned to us when we would get it. And it was like and it seems easy enough. You just play five. You're not going to do it by yep. accident. Where like you, you wouldn't, you, know. you wouldn't think so, <laughs> you would you? Think so. <laughs> you wouldn't think so. And long story short, on that one too, he did, and uh, that really kind of bummed out the game. But, well, I did, yeah. yeah. So you were doing middays for a long time, and then there were some changes at Riff. Um, you moved to mornings because was I it J- did. JJ, you know, JJ moved to Wheels. Right? JJ moved to Wheels, and that's when radio got weird. That's when radio got weird. Um, I didn't want to do mornings. I never wanted to do mornings, but everybody always considered me to be the most natural guy to do mornings if you didn't have mornings that were that good. In other, it's an interesting way of playing it. <laughs> in other words, I was... I was the bullpen guy you know I was the guy that like boy if you didn't have a great morning show Ken Calvert would be a great morning show you guys really got it good because if anything ever happens to your morning show (laughs) you got Ken Calvert well that that's a nice feeling to have sure it's not a nice feeling to have when the morning show that you have goes to a radio station that you compete with right so the audience still has the morning radio show. Now you have to go... And earn a brand new audience. And just for two months go, they're at WLOZ. Mm. Hi, Riff, they're at WLOZ. <laughs> Hi, Riff, they're at WLOZ. Yeah, that is rough. So you try and eventually get some cred, but that was the hardest part. Of, but the hardest part 
But there was a point where Lynn, uh, TC, Sports Grunt, Fred McLeod, host of other characters, with yours truly. And Joe Napoli was in there. Well, at one point, that that was not my doing, and I don't mean to ever say a bad word about Joe. That just didn't work. It was he brought too much energy and too much of of his own personal direction that I was not into. And he wasn't really a radio guy. He, he was, was not. He was a comedian and a damn good comedian, mm-hmm. a damn good comedian. But he got he got way 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 too involved. And he wanted, he got to the point of nearly demanding that we do a bit with Sly Stallone, demanding that we do a bit with Howard Cosell. Mm. He did a character that nobody understood that a friend of his in L.A. had created, and he was the donut man, and it didn't work, it didn't make sense, and it drove me absolutely Mm. insane. And Lynn was working with us on and off again. She just decided to just do the news. I mean, he became that disruptive. Yeah, she's kind so of gave up. She was no longer... She was like, I, I don't want to just do the news. I want to be a part of the show. No, at that particular time, she wanted to just do the news and let oh, us God, have at it because she yeah. knew it was getting just a little too freakish. The yeah. Pa- yeah, the the party was no longer a party. <laughs> and it didn't last long. But it was weird because Jim and George did not take Lynn. You know, it was always... JJ and and George, um, and it was, and that left. We had a point where Bob Page. Then you know, Eli was doing TV, and Eli didn't have the room to do, you know, that anymore. So he decided, well, if you guys are going to WLOC, then I'm just going to go do my Channel Four stuff, and Lynn will stay back, and Napoli. You know, it was just Lynn and I, but they insisted that I had to have a partner. So they didn't recruit me in the decision at all. In fact, they went to Mike Binder, very good friend of mine. Another comedian. Detroit's own Mike Binder. Yeah, and he's now a very, very successful film director. You know, he he cast Arthur. Right. uh, in the upside of anger, yeah, outside of anger, yeah. or the upside, upside of, anger. of anger, yeah, yeah. So they went to they they went to Binder, and Binder said, "I got a guy that might work, and his name is Joe Napoli." And mm-hmm. I thought, "Why didn't you say Dave Coulier?" Right, Dave Coulier is funny, and He's you were a, rolling with all these guys because you were spending time. a lot yeah. of time at the comedy. How about Bill Ingvall? Bill Ingvall. How about Craig Shoemaker? You know, I mean, how about Jerry Seinfeld? <laughs> right. How about, Tim, Tim, how about Tim Allen? How about Jim Carrey or Tim Allen? Right. And well, yeah, absolutely. And they all would have done it. Mm. They all would have done it. So, it was really uh, that that became the toughest. That's when things uh, radio was still my passion and my joy, but that's when things started to get fragmented. Yeah, and it was it no longer had the new car smell. Right, it now started to have that whiff of mileage on it. You know what I mean? Started and to I feel like work. Started to feel like I knew this business pretty well. Yeah, and I was seeing some dark sides to it. It was no longer it was no longer the utopian you know cloud that I'd been on for ten ten wonderful fifteen wonderful years. Mm-hmm. I started to see the dark side of it. 
and I started to just see things that really, you know, were just affecting everything. I mean, it was like ratings became so important. It was money. Personality. It was ego. Money. It was ego. Yeah. All of those things. It just got to be, the greed started to come into it. Yeah. You know? Uh, my, yeah. my home's bigger than your home. Mm-hmm. Sort of. And I, I don't mean that either. It's just, you know, it started to get to, to be where you fell out of touch with old, dear friends. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're competing you against some competitors. Thank you, old dear friends. You were yeah. competitors, so it, it was difficult. It was it was difficult, and the only thing that I did that I loved that kept me on everybody's radar was the Pistons. Yeah. Coming up, ladies and gentlemen, number four, Joe Dumars, and we were Dumars looking over at me, and when he get a bucket, I'd do the same thing. Looking at me, looking at me. So finally, one day he comes over to check in when the players would check in, almost like college. Got his hand on the table. I said, Hey, Joe, how you doing? He goes, Cool. I said, Do you mind me doing that Dumars thing? He goes, I don't care. He said, But my mom likes it. So as long as she likes it, keep doing it. I said, Okay. Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Lainey Wilson is on a roll. She's delivering great music and teaming up with some of country's hottest acts. Text Lainey to 45911 to see which four Lainey Wilson collabs have us talking at BackstageCountry.com. Text Lainey to 45911 to get a link to the list sent right to your phone from BackstageCountry.com. The history of WRIF. Ken Calvert and a great opportunity for me to introduce you to my new best friend, Stevie Nicks. And I can also introduce you to her new single at the same time. It's called Secret Love. And Stevie, tell me a little bit about the song. It's very old. It's the oldest song that I can remember writing after Fleetwood, after joining Fleetwood Mac. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. Whatever it was, <laughs> I never told anybody. Can I pretend it was me? You certainly can. All right, well, thank you so much. I could have been traveling through <laughs> yeah. Detroit. Yes. And I could have run into you on the street. I think you did. And I could have, we could have had a visit. Yes. And I could have flown away the next night and nobody uh-huh. would have ever known. And I would have and said nothing. And I would nothing. have written the song. And I would you would have, have said, said nothing because you would have been honorable. No, I would have been in tears, though. Right, you would have been in tears. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Ken Calvert. Now, you're with the Pistons, and you couldn't have picked a better time oh. to start doing that gig. And that was never supposed to happen. <laughs> so let's just get our listeners up to speed. Ken was the, the Pistons PA announcer inside the Palace from 1986 to 2002. Yes. And how did how did you get that job? That's an interesting very strange. job. Uh, very, very strange. I used to go out to the games, the Pontiac Silverdome with a couple of buddies. Mike Mayer was one of them. Um, and... Uh, it was just easy. It was just an easy thing to do. So we would go out there, and there was a guy by the name of Gary May. And Gary May was doing the Pistons. And uh, they had the big blue curtain up. And uh, they had the main event, and they did it all wrong. You know, the main event was on the, the side where the curtain was up. So if you started at the main event... Couldn't yep, see the game. Yeah, yeah. Have a couple of cocktails. And then you'd walk over and sit down. And then they had all these little... 
stands where you could go down on the floor, bare floor, around the basketball court. And then they had a, another set of, of stands directly across from the mounted stands in the Pontiac Silverdome. So Gary May is doing the games. And he's like, Detroit ball, out of bounds. And I was like, and I turned to Mayor or Buzz Van Houten and I go, Detroit ball, out of bounds. <laughs> Mocking so, him. <laughs> so I got, I, I got to know a couple of the guys on the table because they were fans of the radio show. And when I'd go down for, um, to get a beer or whatever, and, and the ushers were always, hey, Kenny Coward, how you doing, bro? Nice to see you, man. Love the show. Thank you. Yeah, how are you? Bam. Firing the guns. <laughs> you bet, man. So I go down, and somehow, some way, I run into Gary May. I always ran into Gary May after the games at the main event. And so he's sitting up there, and uh, I, I, I did my impersonation of Gary May. And I had a couple of cocktails. I said, hey, I'm going to do my impersonation of you. Are you ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, I'd like to ask you to please rise and join us in honoring America as Dr. Tim Coldiron performs God Bless America. And he goes, hey, that's pretty damn good. Said, well, thank you. <laughs> so he calls me up a few months later, and he said, hey, listen, I coach Berkeley football, and the Pistons have an exhibition season. I can't do the games. And he said, well, I can do a few, but I can't do all of them. You want to fill in? I said, no. Hell no, dude. I said, I don't even, I, I get it, but I don't know. I'm like, I can't. He said, Alex, it's a no-brainer. You sit with, beside two guys who tell you everything. You just, you just say what they tell you. He said, can't screw it up. It's only exhibition. So we were playing at Central Michigan, playing at St. John's in uh, Windsor. Or St. John, I don't even remember. I was like, man, I got to drive. He didn't want to drive to all these gigs. That was the deal. Played at the University of Toledo. Played at Eastern. And now, of course, you know, they play in their own building, as we did later on. So, did a couple of exhibition games. Then I had to do a couple of real games for him because of the fact that he was, Berkeley got into the playoffs. And so I was like, okay. So Matt Dobeck who was the public relations director, comes over and he's like, where'd you come from? I said, don't ask me, I'm filling in for Gary May. Well, it would have been nice if somebody asked me. And he was a, he was a tough SOB. So anyway, all of a sudden I fill in another game. He goes, how you doing? I said, I'm good. Are you all right? He goes, yeah, I'm fine with you. You're fine. So <laughs> I ended up doing about eight games that year. It was the year they drafted Dumars. So I always thought Lou Whitaker at Tiger Games, people, Lou, and Al Kaline, George Swell would say, you know, George Kell would say, now they're not booing, you know. It was like Lou Pinella in New York. Right. Sounded like they're not they were booing. booing. They're, they're saying Lou. <laughs> Lou, like, sweet you know, Lou. Oh, well, this guy's a rookie. He's a guard. When I go, do Mars, when... You know, when he's bringing the ball up the backcourt, let him go, let him, ooh. You know, that's what I was trying to create. Right. Making the game about me. <laughs> it's got to be about Ken. You had to be a big shot, didn't you? And so I was like, so then whenever he would come into the game, I'd go, you know, ladies and gentlemen, number four, Joe Dumars. And we were Dumars looking over at me, and when he'd get a bucket, I'd do the same thing. 
looking at me, looking at me, looking at me, looking at me. So finally one day it comes over to check in when the players would check in, almost like college basketball. And he got his hand on the table. I said, hey, Joe, how you doing? He goes, cool. I said, do you mind me doing that Dumars thing? He goes, I don't care. He said, but my mom likes it. So as long as she likes it, keep doing it. I said, oh, okay. The end of that season, Dobeck calls me. Calvary, yeah, it's Dobeck. I said, hey, what's up, Matt? Well, I got a problem. I said, what? He goes, I'm firing Gary May. I said, why? It's because I'm firing him. You don't have to know why. <laughs> I said, and I'm hiring you. I said, well, I, I don't want the job. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm firing him anyway. I said, okay, great. Well, you've got to take the gig. you got to take it. I said, uh, yeah, okay. I mean, let me think about it. Don't, don't take long. And I started <laughs> thinking about it, and people said, oh, dude, don't be a fool. That'd be awesome. Do that. You know? So I thought, yeah, I'll do it. So I started at the Silver Dome. Did the, the most, the 63,480 people. That was pretty cool. Well, and the Pistons were just heating up at this point, too. <laughs> heating up like you read about, yeah. Right. Just traded for lame beer, mm-hmm. you know? And then they, get, they end up getting Ricky Mahorn, because I hated him. Hated him as a bullet, now Wizards. We hated that big fat ass man. He was just wouldn't scream at him from the table. He fit in with the bad boys, oh, though, man. Man, did we adore him, Ricky? So anyway, I ended up doing that for I know, sixteen years. I got two rings out of the deal, and you got the rings. You I got did get the rings. rings, and people people say, I get on an airplane. People go, uh, What did you? Does your dad own the team? Now they go, What do you own a team or something? Uh-huh. You know, or, what the hell college is that? Because they're so big now. Jeez. Yeah. But, so to say, the, I mean, 89, 90, 90, uh, 91, just. Great years. God, we had a ball. So when you were doing the Joe Dumars thing, yeah. most other PA announcers and other teams were just kind of doing the boring. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was so, the, none of the hip-hop had arrived yet. So they didn't know what to think when you were doing yeah, Joe Dumars. Like and no, they, they, they didn't like you And then the guy, Ray Clay in Chicago. Um, decided Ray Clay. He was a radio guy too, but he was more one of those guys. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, and he went into a register that I couldn't stand. Your Chicago Bulls, you know, with the Alan Parsons Project music. <laughs> right, right. Know, and I thought the final countdown kicked everybody's ass. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pete <laughs> Scorch, you yeah. got it, baby. Mm-hmm. Peter, you nailed it. You know, and I'll never forget, man. Dick Stockton, national TV. We throw it to our play-by-play announcer, or to our PA announcer, Mr. Ken Calvert. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. And I was like, breathe, Ken, breathe, <laughs> breathe, breathe. It's only national TV. <laughs> After that thing was over, somebody said, it's up on YouTube. I said, I can't watch it. I didn't watch it until probably 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that something? So, but, uh, yeah, so that, that got me out of my funk about where radio was going because I was in kind of a funk. And you had something new and it's very exciting. So and, was that, and was that hard? I mean, there's 41 home games, right? It was hard. Yeah, it wore you out. And you were doing mornings for part of that. So. For a long time. Like, that's really morning, tough. So that was a great turnaround. I slept four in the morning, four at night, four in the morning. Yeah, I was never so glad for him to go to the West Coast. Right. That was when life, you're, you kind of resettled. And then all of a sudden, 
I went to LLZ, the, the most money I ever made in my life. And within a, a year and a couple of months of that contract, CBS sold the radio station. Sold wheels. Flipped it to jazz. Said you don't have to come in. You can if you want. We'll give you an office. Otherwise, you just stay home and collect your money. For the remainder they, of your contract. Yeah, but we got a non-compete on you that's, that's his, that you can not work. Mm. So JR came after me, oddly enough. It's when J.P. McCarthy died. J.P. McCarthy, they had me fill in for J.P. McCarthy. And I did really well. And it was like I was actually considered for that gig. That was after J.P. McCarthy died. After he died. Yeah. Directly after he died. Okay. Yeah. You were the next Jimmy Lance was filling mm-hmm. in. Uh, a few other guys. We kind of rotated yeah, in in the morning. And we did it in spite of the wheels. They didn't care. Yeah. It, it was, was not so really not cool. in their wheelhouse. Yeah. It was like, go ahead and do it. And then nothing opened up after I did JR for a few, uh, I'd say a year of just, and they offered me a gig. They offered me a gig, and I never really felt comfortable in that at all. I loved it. I liked it. But I just felt like something was, that really, you know, wasn't where I wanted to yeah. be. And so I, luckily for me, the, I, got, I won the, the money lottery again. Dr. Laura insisted on my day part, which was 12 to 3. Hmm. She was on at night. She insisted upon it. So they wanted to move me into this and create this and create that. And I said, why don't I just go away? Why don't you guys just, you know, why don't we just, I'll take the dough. And they were like, really? And I said, yeah, yeah. And so I just was on the streets because, of, you know, with Wheels and JR, and I did some ancillary work for, um, the palace. I was just kind of helping them out in media, mm. you know, doing stuff. Yeah, and I, as it turned out, we were doing a thing. We were looking for opening acts, comedy acts, which we were going to partner with uh, Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle for Pine Knob. And I was just going to radio stations and talking about what we were trying to do. And people said, "What are you doing now? What are you doing now? What are you doing now?" Went to CSX. I was on with JJ and Lynn. As a, as a guest, just a guest. As a guest on the morning show. Yep. I called them up. Said, "Can I come on as a guest?" And they said, "Sure." Came on, and two months later, it happened again. And that's where I worked for sixteen years, and that's where it all came to an end. And that was your longest stint at any. It was radio sixteen station. years. 16 yep, years it sure was, time. and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely loved it. And I never ever thought I'd have to, you know, pull up. And not be able to go into the building. Right. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I never thought that would happen. Well, it changes all over again. Yeah, but I was, you know, I kind of termed out, I think. And now I'm doing like so many other people are. Although I'm really, I'm not good at it because I cannot, I'm not disciplined enough. I've got OCD, really bad, ADD, whatever it is. I start something and then I... I get into it and I kind of let another thing mm, get in your way. Yeah. yeah, it kind of like it, it can sit there for a while. But I decided this week the Ken Calvert Show podcast is going back up. Oh, good. We haven't posted anything for about a month because you've done quite a few I podcasts. Have, yeah, yeah, and so that'll go back up. I just found a ton of more stuff. 
I just found it. And once I I see, when I find something, then I go on a mission to find more. I go on a mission, and I went on that mission, and that mission was into the basement. And by God, I found it. Some old good tapes. I did find a ton of dats. And I got some good stuff. So I got to just say, and you know what else I got to do, Mike? I got to just sit down and feel comfortable opening the mic Mm. and just telling people what the hell I think. Right. Because I drive around and I'm thinking about stuff all the time. And I think it's funny. I think it's observational. Nobody gets hurt. No one will ever know where I am politically. You know, people that say opinions are mine, whatever, have no interest in going there. You know, you will never, ever follow me into a voting booth, (laughs) and you'll never, ever follow me out. And if you'd like to, you can, but I'll just hand you your I voted sticker, but that's all you're going to get from me. Coming up. He never, ever said baby. He said A-B. Okay, now think about this. Rock and roll. Good afternoon, everybody. It's me, Arthur P. Rock and roll. Bye bye. Did you hear a B in that? Did anybody hear a B? The history of WRIF. The podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts. Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Lainey Wilson is on a roll. She's delivering great music and teaming up with some of country's hottest acts. Text Lainey to 45911 to see which four Lainey Wilson collabs have us talking at BackstageCountry.com. Text Lainey to 45911 to get a link to the list sent right to your phone from BackstageCountry.com. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF with Mike Staff and our special guest, Ken Calvert. So, Ken, looking back, um, when, when, what era do you feel like you were most in your zone? That you're most like you were there, you were right I'll give you a year. 1983. Mm-hmm. 1983. I was still in my 20s. My body was working right. <laughs> I... Was I had so much energy, so much passion. I had I had so many great friends that are still my great friends, and I couldn't. There was not a reason to be angry about anything. Mm-hmm. I would if I could. When I die, I'm going to say, "Look, here's look. I know we'll get there. Okay, I you know I had a chance to see my mom and dad. Okay, I saw them. It was great." And they're they're busy as it is. I knew they would be. Can I go back to eighty three for just about fifteen minutes? Can I do that? Okay. <laughs> well, do I just stand here? What happens? Wouldn't okay. that be cool? Okay. One, two, three. Poof. Yeah. Anybody seen Arthur? Is he going to be on time? <laughs> I. Somebody on the hallway said he called. He's not. He's going to be late. Is that true? Arthur has, has always said you were the absolute best midday host that ever lived in any radio station anywhere that you were just born for the role. Well, we can end with this if you'd like. He was the best man at my wedding. And he had so much fun at the bachelor party. There was some great concern that he may not make the wedding. But he made it. Of course. But he was supposed to help with a lot of different things early that morning. 
That didn't happen. <laughs> they have the best man responsibilities. And finally, I want you to realize and think very hard about this. He never ever said baby. He said AB. Okay, now think about this. Rock and roll. Good afternoon, everybody. It's me, Arthur P. Rock and roll. Hey, bye. Did you hear a B in that? Did anybody hear a B? That's true. Rock and roll. Hey. Ken, thank you. Been My an absolute pleasure. pleasure. I had a B A double L with a capital B. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. 101 FM WRIF. Hey, buddy. Take that, Arthur.